Hello and welcome to Global Council's Geopolitics Podcast. I'm John Garvey, Global Council's Practice Director for International Policy. Today, we're going to focus on the geopolitics of infrastructure. We're doing this in the shadow of a G7 summit, which pledged $600 billion in infrastructure investment over the next five years into the developing world, and even larger advanced economy programs from the $1.2 trillion US dollar Infrastructure and Jobs Act to the $1 trillion Euro EU Green Deal. To unpack all of that, I'm delighted to be joined today by Ali Mirage. Ali is Managing Director in Infrastructure Finance at ING. He's also a prolific political commentator and columnist and a former Conservative Party advisor. Ali, welcome to Global Council. Great to be with you, John. So before we get into the politics, I thought we should start by defining our terms a little bit, because infrastructure can have a very broad definition. It's traditionally thought of as big t- big ticket physical projects, but that's clearly no longer the case. Can you just tell us a bit about how the landscape has changed from an industry perspective? Yes, John. Uh, the reason why the definition of infrastructure is expanded, and you're quite right, when you think about infrastructure traditionally, you do think about big ticket items, things like airports, ports, gas networks, electricity networks, uh, these kinds of assets where you have certain characteristics, so stable cash flows, an essential service, a monopolistic kind of situation uh, where you've got a piece of infrastructure that can't be easily replicated. So that's what it traditionally was all about. But what you've had in recent years is a real proliferation of the interest in the sector. I mean, to give you an idea, private capital coming into the equity side of the industry uh, from equity funds raising money from their limited partners was $136 billion last year, another record year. And this salacious appetite on the part of underlying investors being pension funds and insurance companies for the infrastructure asset class has been huge. And that's been driven partly by a low interest rate environment where they want to increase their allocations to alternative asset classes and real assets, including infrastructure, to try and drive that higher yield. And what that has meant is that the definition of infrastructure has been forced to expand because there aren't enough ports, airports, and all those traditional pieces of infrastructure to buy. So now you see um, things like uh, modular building providers uh, as infrastructure. You see bioscience parks uh, being considered infrastructure, uh, even even uh, potentially uh, bottling companies for soft drinks, which uh, it, some would argue is really on the cusp, really, uh, and taking it to whole new areas. So that blurring of traditional private equity uh, risk and infrastructure risk is becoming more and more blurred. That's most pronounced, really, in the big investment, the huge investment in uh, digital. Uh, that has been absolutely huge with uh, data centers, fiber, et cetera, which were really the preserve of traditional private equity houses now being completely obscene by infra- infrastructure equity funds. And just just in the way that um, the industry and funds approach this, is, is there a difference now in terms of the asset classes between those traditional sorts of projects that you described and, uh, say, infrastructure projects in the digital sphere or the net zero sphere. Do you see Do you see all of these uh, different classes getting bundled up within funds or do they tend to be separated out? Well, there are sector-specific funds. And what you'll see, John, is that amongst those sector-specific funds, uh, the renewables area is leading the way with 51% of all sector funds uh, being dedicated to renewables, about 30-odd percent 
being dedicated to digital. So if you're, if you're running a global general fund, then they'll be merged into that. But if you're running a sector-specific fund, then it's going to be the decarbonization renewables track that's going to lead the way or the digital track, which what are we talking about there? We're talking about really fiber rollout, data centers, and to a lesser extent, towers. Um, but all of it is, is um, captured within the infrastructure definition now. And there is just a voracious appetite for it. I mean, you just look at the digital side and the multiples that some of these things are going for now could be up to 25 to 30 times uh, of EBITDA, which is huge, right? And there has been some talk and some concern amongst leading players within the industry, certain leading players, saying that potentially, you know, this has been banked on the back of a very low interest rate environment where a lot of debt is being put into these um, companies. Uh, there is a lot of rollout risk and ramp up risk in a lot of these uh, digital, uh, not, and not only digital, but particularly digital uh, businesses. And that's all very well where interest rates are low. But when you're leading to a high high inflation and increasing interest rate environment now, you've seen that with the, the tightening um, with the Fed that's raising rates quite aggressively. And also in the UK, you'll see it across Europe as well. Um, that is going to be uh, making, I think, investors scratch their heads more. And the question then is, if you've been banking on that to increase your valuations, where does your growth actually come from? Does it come from operational um, improvements uh, or how else are you going to actually drive value in this business? In a lot of these um, new companies, we're really talking about rollouts of infrastructure that doesn't exist now, particularly fiber. And that certainly is needed. I mean, you just have to think the last two years, we're all sitting at home in COVID, or a lot of us have, uh, working on... Uh, uh, you know, 5G connections or Wi-Fi connections, broadband, and you need fast broadband. Uh, and that is also part of this whole uh, leveling up agenda to try and make it more equitable by rolling it out to uh, rural areas across the country as well, which is really important. Uh, we should just, I'm sure most of our audience will know, but EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Um just another fancy word for like sustainable cash flows. Exactly. You talked about the search for higher yield, driving financing into potentially riskier projects, I suppose. How would you differentiate between the sort of traditional infrastructure investment in ports and roads and bridges and so on, and the sort of digital connectivity, net zero transition kind of investment, which is, you know, possibly on a slightly um, shorter time scale, I suppose, but is that also classified as higher risk? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned, I mean, if you go back in time when this whole infra infrastructure uh, fashion started, I mean, it was really led by countries like Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, etc., that were really investing a lot through public-private partnerships. That's where it started. And even in the UK, um, particularly under the new Labour government, it was a, it was a fashionable thing to do. And, and it brought together private capital uh, where the public sector really wanted to drive investment, but didn't want to put it all on its own balance sheet. And frankly, didn't even have all the cash itself up front to do it. So that's where it really started. And that's where you got the investment in hospitals and roads and bridges uh, and, and other things. And there's a very well-developed model in places like Canada and the Netherlands, et cetera, for that. And those, uh, when you actually look to the debt financing for those deals, and they were like new bills, a lot of this thing, right? You were talking about 20 to 25, even 30 years of 
a commitment's been given by finance, uh, financiers, uh, banks, and other other uh, debt institutions that would lend this money, and then the returns would come from the government, basically paying the constructor of this road or bridge or whatever uh, an annual fee for the next thirty years that would cover the risk to the equity investor and also uh, cover the debt costs, etc. And those were long-term projects. Now you're absolutely right to say that if you look at the digital sphere or even some of the emerging technologies, uh, there's more risk involved. So you're typically talking about five to seven years that lenders would lend on that because they are riskier and there is a lot of ramp up risk in there. I mean, some would say that it's really an equity play, but there are debt providers going in uh, to this stuff. And the reason it's more of an equity play is because you are rolling out infrastructure where you don't necessarily have all your subscribers signed up day one at all. You're taking a speculative risk that by building this, build it and they will come to a certain degree. Now, obviously, in an environment where many would argue fiber has become the fourth utility. We need it. It's essential. Uh, that's fine. But there is an overbuild risk. And there's also a risk in terms of valuations on some of these companies, which at the moment are not backed really by cash flows. You're taking a view yet again on the future. So look, I don't want to be too disparaging about this, but it, it is good to just send out this note of caution uh, so that we don't lose our heads in a similar way that you know financial markets always do, and we perpetually go in these cycles, just to take a step back and to pause and be calm and rational and really look at the credit fundamentals of where investments are taking place. So I want to I want to drill into the sort of why why all the excitement why the fervor now point in a second but just before we do just to finish off on the sort of definition of terms point there's been a lot of foray recently about what does constitute an ESG fund what doesn't how do you see the politics of that as reflected in the infrastructure debate is there is there much questioning from both retail and wholesale markets as to whether some of these things that have been packaged up as you know infrastructure of the future are genuinely ESG products well i think john you raise an interesting point or allude to this that the focus and interest on ESG has been absolutely huge. And I've just seen it exponentially increase in the last couple of years. I mean, a few years ago, we were having conversations with clients about what a sustainability-linked loan was. And for your listeners, I mean, basically, that means that you would adjust your interest margins that you charge on your loan if the company you're lending to meets certain ESG targets, right, to incentivize them to try and green their companies, decarbonize, treat their staff even better than they are, etc. whatever they are. And sorry, the, and the criteria for the sustainability link would be drawn from what in this well, case? Well, well, essentially what you do is you work with management and you say, depending on the kind of business they're running, right, uh, you would actually look at the way that they actually want to decarbonize uh, their own company. Uh, there could be governance factors in terms of diversity on the board. There could be social factors about the number of uh, staff retention levels, etc. So there could be any number of metrics that could be looked at to try and incentivize management to move in a certain direction. Now, the way it's worked is that a couple of years ago, we were it was very nascent. We were having conversations with clients about what sustainability-linked loans were, how they worked. Now the conversation's moved on completely to, okay, what are the metrics that the the leaders in this sector are using, we want to do the same. So there's actually a certain element of competition now between um, companies to try and be the leaders in this space. But you're absolutely right to say, or, or, or to highlight the point that there is a lot more scrutiny around two things. One, ESG funds. So for example, 
Brookfield just raised a huge 15 billion ESG-led fund, which is going to be led by Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England. It shows you the appetite for uh, ESG-invested, uh, ESG-related uh, investments, uh, but also um, a lot more scrutiny around, as I say, sustainability linkage, both on the bond side or loan side, in terms of are the metrics that you're setting for management really searching? Are they stretching? Are they trying to encourage the right behavior? Or is this a box ticking exercise? And I think underlying investors are very wise to greenwashing now. There is a lot more scrutiny and focus on this. And that's partly driven by the fact that the social context for this conversation has changed. It really has completely and utterly changed. And frankly, if you look at COP26 and all these things, I personally think that the financial sector is in many ways leading the charge. Governments are actually being a bit slow to react, a bit lackluster, still setting targets, still discussing these things. The financial sector is actually getting on with the job of making this stuff happen. I would completely agree with that. And I think we're actually, um, from a consultancy perspective, we're seeing that in a wider array of industries where you've got industries calling for much more clarity on, for example, you know, what constitutes scope three emissions, what constitutes emissions, uh, how do you how do you um, detail emissions right down your supply chain? And on all of this, obviously, we're still dealing with a lot of overlapping frameworks that makes it very difficult. So to come back to the why is this all in the news? right now. Um, before we turn to any of the stuff around the G7, I just wanted to make a you know, observation about sort of infrastructure in advanced economies, which is really, as you said, we've we've been in this world since certainly the late 90s, where governments have been trying to crowd in more private investment to infrastructure. But there is also clearly a massive gaping hole at the heart of you know, just even the traditional built physical infrastructure in advanced economies. Um, that's particularly present in the UK. I was looking at uh, the G20's Global Infrastructure Hub, which uh, shows that I think the UK's infrastructure gap is something around 120 something billion. It's a lot less in France and Germany. The US infrastructure gap is over a trillion, I think. And they've got this $1.2 trillion infrastructure and jobs act that went through last year, one of the few bipartisan pieces of legislation that really has, um, has found a way through. Why, why do you see that gap as having developed? It's a big question, but why are we here suddenly in this moment of crisis having known what the problem was for so long? That's a very interesting question, and I think it's part of the reason. It, it's what uh, Mark Carney actually said in one of his speeches in relation to climate change, not infrastructure, but it's, a, it's the same point, which is the tragedy of the horizon. The, the, the view that politicians in democratic states typically take, John, as you know, is probably four to five years, right? Um, they don't look out further. Now, the National Infrastructure Commission that was established some years ago was an attempt uh, to try and take this out of the bipartisan debate that goes on between, in the, at least in this country, between the two main political parties, and try and have a group of experts that would look and assess what was needed in the country and make proposals to the government, which it has, and the government's form responded to that. But ultimately, they still had, have no ultimate power. They're not, they're not independent in the sense that they can take it out of politics and say, right, this is how much uh, investment we need over billions over the next few years. This is where it's going to go. And that's where it's going to be. It doesn't work like that. And when you compare it to um, uh, autocratic capitalist states like China, for example, 
they can take a 100-year view. I mean, we have a heart attack about lane widening on the A12. They're working out uh, building a common destination, a common destiny for mankind, right? It's a completely different uh, perspective. They look 100 years out. And not only do they look about their infrastructure needs, which is also driven by their uh, voracious appetite for natural resources to drive their economy, they also look at it in the broader geostrategic context of where they want to be, what influence they want to exert in their region and beyond. Now, you talked about uh, Biden's 1.2 trillion infrastructure um, plan. I mean, how long did that take to get through? I mean, look, uh, credit where it's due. At least he did it, and he did it before the midterms are going to happen, which uh, are not looking great right now uh, for the Democrats. Um, So at least he did that. But it's a lot it falls very short of the 4.5 trillion that some of the Democrats were talking about, uh, which would have been the biggest infrastructure game changer since um, the New Deal. They didn't do that. However, look, it is still the biggest investment since Dwight D. Eisenhower's interstate highway in the 1950s. It will lead to infrastructure investment sorely needed in the country. And you can see here the government's also announced a couple of years ago that it would invest $600 billion in various infrastructure by 2025. I'm not exactly sure what's happened to that number, but I don't know where the money is all going to come from. Uh, but certainly it's on the agenda. And you've got the EU talking about its own infrastructure elements. EU fit for 55. It wants to reduce carbon emissions by 55% by 2030. This is all going to cost a lot of money and infrastructure. But you're absolutely right to highlight the fact that the government can't do it all by itself. It does need to crowd in private investment, and there are various mechanisms that it can use to do that. So we'll we'll come back to we'll come back to those mechanisms specifically. Um, I just want to focus on for a moment on the fascinating point you made about the difficulty in really pushing through this stuff over the long term in democracies. And that's been much commented on over, you know, the last five, 10 years. As you say, China has a different time horizon. China has, and China can also deliver, it doesn't need to in the same way, it can deliver a sort of certainty of policy framework to, albeit state-owned enterprises, that democratic governments simply can't offer uh, to enterprises in their jurisdictions. Do you think we are at a point of change with that, though? I mean, as as I said, there was bipartisan support for uh, the Jobs and Infrastructure Act in the US. It does seem that the whole of the EU is, though to varying extents, they have agreed that the Fit for 55 package, they've agreed the EU Green Deal. We are sort of centering, or we were, certainly before the Tory leadership contest kicked off, we were, um, both parties in the UK are pretty clear on the need for more regional development and infrastructure development, particularly across the UK. So my question is: Do you think do you think there has been a grasping of the nettle that point that puts us at a point of possibly catalytic change in the West? Have we realised finally that we've got to invest in this stuff? Catalytic is an interesting word, John, and I wish it was catalytic. Look, you think back to the G7 summit uh, last year when Biden, President Biden, talked about the Building Better World program, and you know there was some talk. 
uh, out in the ether, there would be 40 trillion of public investment by 2035. That number seems to have disappeared, uh, been kicked into the long grass. But at least you're right to say that when they met in Bavaria recently, they talked about 600 billion of public and private sector investment coming together to be invested uh, across the developing world. And you see that in certain projects already, uh, the solar project that they're building in Angola, where they're investing 2 billion, uh, this um, uh, connected um, uh, telco asset that's going to be connecting Singapore to France, etc. So this is all moves in the right direction, but it's very much playing catch up. And you, if you look at China, I think there are two elements to really consider when you look at China. One is the geostrategic ambition of their plan. I mean, they were absolutely focused on the fact that they wanted to revive uh, the Silk Roads back from the Han Dynasty from, you know, 206 BC, uh, going 4,000 miles, not only across Central Asia, but right into Europe. They've already invested about a trillion dollars in this, um, but it's not all to the benefit of the so-called inverted commas recipient countries. I mean, you look at the issues that Sri Lanka has had with uh, having to hand over Han Batota port, which was massively indebted. So it doesn't come uh, with no um, bells and whistles attached. Uh, it's not completely uh, benign and altruistic. But the Chinese have a very clear idea of what their strategy is and the fact that they want to use infrastructure as a means to acquire territorial influence across Central Asia, but far, far beyond. That's one element. The second element is that they've been really, really clear about the place of industrial strategy and policy as part of the overall policy framework, something that we have been in the West really shy about and pretty useless, frankly. You look at the Made in China 2025 initiative, what is that all about? It's basically saying that we want to transform this economy from a low-wage economy to a very high productivity economy around five key areas, artificial intelligence, 5G, aerospace, semiconductors, EV, electric vehicles, and biotech. And, and what are they doing about this? They're putting their money where their mouth is. They are basically saying, we are going to directly invest in some of these sectors, not, necessar not necessarily picking winners. This isn't some dirigista strategy where they're going to just back certain companies, but they're going to invest strategically in certain sectors massively in R&D. And they are very, very serious about driving this forward. And what this shows is, Globalization, yes, we all understand the benefits of it, but it hasn't worked for everyone. And what this shows is that in a world which is going to be becoming increasingly uh, one where countries are going to become more self-reliant, and there are whole reasons for that, partly globalization not seem to have worked for everyone, the economic uh, spoils have not accrued equally to all, but also on the back of COVID and supply chain issues, etc. This seems to make a lot of sense. Now, in the UK, to bring it back uh, here, for a second, the government's trying in its own little way to do stuff. It's investing $100 million in various R&D hubs. Um, but that industrial strategy that Greg Clark, when he was business secretary, talked about, um, basically never really went anywhere. I mean, might be revived now that he's just been appointed leveling up secretary for the next couple of months. Uh, but I'm not holding my breath. But I do think it's something that we seriously need to examine. And that the West itself, in this battle for territorial influence, uh, and all that that leads to in terms of even the security question needs to consider very carefully. It, this question of branding that you've raised, I think, is um, I think is right on the money because one, one of one of the problems we've had, frankly, in the West over the last year is that, as you said, the original announcement of the Build Back Better World program was at the G7 in Carbis Bay a year ago. 
Now that Build Back Better World label no longer exists. And we know from talking to people in various of the G7 administrations, there's basically been a bit of a bun fight over the last year about what to call this thing, how to brand it, which countries it should focus on. So after G7 last year, uh, we also had towards the end of the year, the EU's Global Gateway Initiative Program. We had the UK announcements. I think the UK initiative was originally called the Clean Green Initiative. At this point, after the G7 summit this year, when it was announced that this new fund, which essentially just, as far as I can see, sort of wraps up and rebrands those previous announcements, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually announce new money, but it does put them all under this label of Partnership for Global Growth Initiative. For, sorry, Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment Initiative. The US and the UK, certainly, I'm not so sure about the EU, but the US and the UK have been saying, yes, there is a bit of rebranding here, but this is actually the first time that we are all on one page. So we've got this thing now. This is going to be the Western alternative to Belt and Road. Um, it has more direction. But the problem with all of that is that I think China's been investing about 8% of its GDP in infrastructure uh, since 1980, in infrastructure investments since 1980. The West as a whole, and these very rough figures, has been investing about 1%. So you would need to see a very, very big change of uh, that history for some sort of realignment to occur. What the West really has been, and I'm sorry, using the West crudely, this is really G7 plus advanced economies. The emphasis has been on values. And I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are on that, because it harks back to the whole, what is ESG? This idea that values might, values and a better kind of technical investment might really attract the attention of some of these countries in Central Asia, Southeast, Southeast Asia, Latin America, away from Chinese influence and sort of into the arms of the West. Do you, do you think that's at all realistic? Well, look, at least they've made a start. I mean, 600 billion is not nothing, and at least it's put under one umbrella. And if you look at the kind of areas that they've said they're going to focus on, uh, John, there we are around uh, climate and energy security, around digital connectivity around health systems and gender equality. So there are, you know, it does provide at least a framework and a basis for this. But the problem here is what is the actual end game of the West? You've got a disparate group of countries all with differing interests in the regions and also a question mark over longevity and commitment. I mean, you could see that and I don't want to stray too much into into, into politics. And we could see that over the withdrawal uh, of the US from Afghanistan, etc. So there is a question mark about, are these people here for the long term? Now, you contrast that with something like the huge investment, $60 billion that's been invested by China in the China-Pakistan economic corridor, uh, leading all the way down to Gwadar Port on the Arabian Sea, right? It's the single biggest Exactly. And you see that it's on the back of a strategic partnership with Pakistan that goes back decades, right, decades. So this is not some quick fix, let's just uh, chuck a bit of money at the problem and see what happens. The Chinese, uh, and you've got to hand it to them on this, irrespective of what whatever your own personal view is on how they conduct their business, they have got a ruthless strategic objective, um, which they are pursuing, and they understand, and they're in the region, they're not going anywhere. And they've also set up the institutional framework 
to deliver it through the um, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, through China Exim, etc. Now, I'm not saying that the West doesn't have its own mechanisms through the World Bank, the IMF, etc., and also this new uh, uh, initiative that they've launched. But I, I think it's a lot harder to try and get G7 plus, as you say, to coalesce around a certain uh, group of strategic objectives where everyone's got their own view on what should be done. You mentioned the uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, which which is an interesting test case in a way, because I think all of the G7, apart from the US and Japan, are members of the AIB, including the UK. And there've been some there've been some commentators who've suggested over the last few weeks that actually one way um, one way for the, the US to sort of drive this in a more positive direction and by drive this, I mean sort of broader geopolitics of the relationship with China as well would be to join the AIIB. Another way of looking at that is just saying this doesn't have to be binary. We don't have to think that country X is either going to fall into China's arms or it's going to fall into the embrace of the West. There is a way, for example, through the AIIB of generating a bit more complementarity. Do you, is, is that a naive hope? Look, I mean, it's another mechanism, and I think it's about giving countries options. Uh, that's certainly the case. So at the moment, the West has largely been absent from the uh, from this strategic game, uh, frankly, because it also has had its, a lot of its own problems to fix. And I don't see those problems going in, going away anytime soon. I mean, look at the look at the fiscal, the dire fiscal position that a lot of Western states are facing, particularly on the back of COVID. But not only that, also very high debt to GDP ratios, a rising inflation environment, and a lot of pressures at home domestically to to actually cater for their own people. So there is going to be a limited amount that can be done. But I think, look. If you look at it from uh, the Chinese angle as well, their own policy is not without its dangers either. Massively indebting a number of different countries is not a sustainable way of going about your business. Yes, it may lead to the Chinese taking control of certain strategic um, points within the region, but it also leads to a lot of animosity uh, and a lot of angst amongst a lot of people. So that's not particularly a great way of conducting uh, statecraft in the long term either. So I do think there's an opportunity for the West here. I don't think it's binary either or, but I think using the AIIB as the primary vehicle, particularly someone like the US, would be probably, I mean, you know, it would probably wouldn't be the preferred uh, modus for them to go down. Um, so they'll probably come up with their own thing. But I think it's at least it's encouraging that the G7 is now engaging in this, in this thing. But I still think they haven't got a clear idea of exactly what they want to achieve. That's my, that's my sense. Yeah, I'd agree with you. And I think, I think it's actually slightly less clear than they've suggested what, exactly what the difference in the offer is, because I mean, you've mentioned the indebtedness and well, the, the stereotype, I suppose, that the Belt and Road Initiative has led to a lot of so-called debt trap diplomacy. The Chinese have actually done quite a few reviews of the BRI. Obviously, this is an initiative that's been going on for over 10 years now. And actually, in some of the, some of the more recent sort of Chinese statements in literature, 
they've emphasized very similar things uh, as the G7 have. So they've mentioned, you know, improving technical standards, improving the terms of the loan, having an emphasis on net zero transformation, more of an emphasis on values as well. So it's not necessarily as clear as some of the sort of Western statements would suggest that there is this sort of fundamental opposition between the two. No, that's true. That's true. But, you know, look, there's another thing that we need to bear in mind, John, and I don't want to digress from your uh, sort of point too much here, but the West and particularly Europe at the moment has got massive problems of its own to fix. I mean, just think about the energy security conundrum on the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February. The world has changed. I mean, you think about German foreign policy, for example, right, for the, for the last 30 years. And that whole mantra of Vandal Dush Handel changed through trade, that by cozying up to the uh, to the Russians that they would be behaving better, that's gone out the window. I mean, if you look at what Olaf Scholz said about that invasion, he said it was ein Zeitenwender, an epoch-changing event. So against that backdrop, there's going to be a lot of getting one's own house in order first before one actually tries to, you know, try and expand one's tentacles in Central Asia. And I'm not saying that it should be completely neglected. I'm just saying that at the moment, the reality is there's huge fiscal pressures at home. There's massive energy security issues. I mean, you're now looking at a a potential situation where the Germans are going to have to ration um, gas. 60% through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline has been reduced by Russia. You've got Franz Timmermans talking about reducing Russian gas imports into the EU by two-thirds by the end of the year. By the way, he said it would be bloody hard, and it will do. Sorry, inverted commas. Um, So these are really serious uh, problems that have to be dealt with, and there are no immediate solutions. And you you could sit back with hindsight and say, well... The EU took its eye off the ball and was too complacent. Yes, that's probably true. But now uh, Germany is looking at developing two new liquefied natural gas terminals. Uh, it's also looking at potential alternatives now. Uh, you've got to accelerate and, and the and decarbonisation. And it's coal production. Well, you see, which is bad, right? Well. I mean, I, look, I understand why. And we've got our own issues around here in Cumbria, whether we're going to do the same thing. Now, no one wants to see that in an ideal world. We really don't. Um, and I, you know, I do think it also raises questions around how long gas is going to be a transition fuel because the reality is you've got to keep the lights on, you've got to keep the economy motoring. And everyone, I think, a bar a few climate change deniers, is focused on the sustainability aspects of the whole thing and about how to drive the economy. But when it's a choice between security of supply in the short term and uh, you know decarbonization, and I don't see it as a as a direct trade-off. I don't think it's in conflict. But if it is a question of keeping the lights on in the very short term, you have to do what you have to do, and that's really not ideal. And the question is, should we have ever got here? We are where we are. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. You now have to deal with the reality in front of you, and it's a really unpleasant, harsh reality where sacrifice is going to have to be made by the populace. And I don't feel that a lot of politicians. Uh, right now are being open and honest with the public about the kind of sacrifices and pain, unfortunately, that is going to have to be endured for the coming years to address this issue uh, against the economic backdrop we've got. Yeah, we're we're beginning to hear a bit more about um, the need for hard, being open about hard choices in the UK. But I agree with you; it's very very difficult to do on a four year political timescale, or even shorter in this case in the UK. But you, just on your energy security point from an infrastructure point of view i mean as you, as you said some short term decisions are being taken that you know the politicians in germany are, are saying 
this isn't a choice we wanted to make, but it is a necessary short-term salve. But surely this is also putting a lot more impetus into the net zero transformation debate and also actually developing infrastructure in other countries that might be sources of supply. I just wonder what what are the policy signals that the market needs to to make those kind of investments? Yeah, well, I think two points. Firstly, I do think it's a massive um, kick up the backside for um, uh, Western states, particularly in Europe, to get a grip of what they're doing here and to decarbonize even more rapidly than they were. So I don't think it's either or. I think it's really important. But, uh, and there's a big but here, um, how do you deal with stability of baseload supply? Right. So even on renewables, until you uh, solve this conundrum of battery storage, right, and there are other methods now being looked at, like compressed air energy storage, um, not completely proven. I mean, some would argue that it is. Um, I take a slightly different view on that. Um, but certainly with, when it comes to battery storage, etc., we haven't cracked it yet. We will do. I'm sure we will. And innovation is happening in that area. But we haven't cracked it yet. So you've got to deal with the issue of baseload power. Now, for the first time in this country, We're having a serious conversation about nuclear. Sizewell C is being discussed right now. Uh, This is on the back of Hinkley Point C, as you know. Sizewell C in Suffolk would be 20 billion pounds of investment. Uh, Part of it would come from the government, taking a 20% stake, 20% from EDF, and the rest would come from the the private private capital, both um, uh, equity and and debt would go in as well. You're talking about 20 billion here. I mean, it's huge. And a 10-year plan, right? So this is not going to happen tomorrow, um, but at least it bites the bullet on the question. I mean, there's also an issue around waste and how you deal with it and evolving communities and making sure you incentivize people to actually want this in their backyard. Um, So all of those things need to be dealt with. So that's one side that you've got to have a serious open conversation about how to deal with baseload power. But to your point about what government needs to do to enable all this, it needs to work in partnership with the private sector. This is not all a question for government to solve on its own. It needs to crowd in private finance. Now, it's developing mechanisms. For example, the National National Infrastructure Bank that's been set up. At the moment, the National Infrastructure Bank is investing directly in infrastructure projects. I think the idea over time, and I hope that they do this, is to try and move away from that and try and enable the private sector to do it uh, by providing support mechanisms. For example, if you're dealing with the rapid rollout of uh, electric vehicle charging, for example, if you're looking at that from a debt investor's perspective, there has to be some stability of cash flows from a debt investor's perspective. Equity slightly different. They, they, they always view the glass half full and they're taking a more bullish view. But to make that bankable, you've got to provide some sort of like minimum revenue guarantee or feed-in tariff or something of that nature, I would have thought, in a similar way that we did when we initially we were rolling out onshore and offshore wind. And then over time, once this gets established, you can gradually pull away that, that subsidy or support from the state. But the state has got a really important job to do as an enabler to crowd in private finance in areas where at the moment there is a dearth of capital going in because there's a fear about the risk involved. There's no dearth of capital sitting around waiting to be deployed. There's tons of capital, too much capital, some would argue. But you need to get the incentives right and the mechanisms right to support that investment. And just to be clear, on on the EV issue, for example, what do you think it what do you think it is specifically that the government should be doing or what what is the policy framework or the missing 
policy incentive there that is holding the market back? Well, look, I think on EV specifically, I think that there should be mechanisms like feed-in tariffs looked at. I mean, EV charging has already been rolled out, and it's been rolled out by multiple different providers, right? So you've got some equipment manufacturers like Tesla doing their own thing. You've got others like BP and Shell doing their own thing. So there are a multitude of providers out there doing this stuff. Uh, Some are just doing it on their own balance sheets. They don't need um, additional debt from the private sector or equity even uh, to do this. But I think if you want to do it at scale quickly right and not not pussyfoot around uh, with this uh, trickling trickling out sort of uh, approach over a series of years if you want to move this at scale you need to work in conjunction hand in glove with the private sector to encourage them to invest and to work out what the roadblocks really are and in my view looking at it with from a debt perspective i'm i'm a financier Uh, I think it needs a bit more government support in terms of the revenue stream. And I don't see that as something that needs to be provided in perpetuity. It's probably a five to 10 year thing and can gradually be uh, withdrawn as we get this rolled out. And then you see which technologies also work because there's a certain amount of technology risk involved in this as well, right? Um, Which is another thing that people, uh, private investors need to be very mindful of. And if they're not mindful of it, then you get... um, asset price bubbles and you get you get uh, uh, crunches and we don't want to go there. It has to be done in a sustainable, meaningful, sensible way. So that's really what I think the government needs to do. And it's not just in EV, it's also in battery storage about how the auction processes work and what, what support you provide to people investing in that sector. So all these emerging sectors that are coming to the market over time, I've got a lot of faith in the market being able to work out where capital should be deployed. Some mistakes will clearly be made in that. It's a discovery thing. But I think the government has got a really important role to play in setting the direction of travel, the ambition, but also the support mechanisms. And that does not mean deploying tons of capital itself directly. I don't think that's actually the right way of doing it. I think it's providing support mechanisms, first loss, uh, or, or whatever it may be, or guaranteed revenues. It goes, it goes back to that question of policy certainty, doesn't it? There are models for how to do this on from a national perspective. And, you know, you could look at some comparative instances, some of the Nordic countries, for example, that have done this very successfully. I think going back to the conversation about um, the, the international the international fight, if you like, it strikes me that we are still, um, after many, many years of this, looking for a model. And you hear, it's exactly the same phrase that you hear over and over again, how do we crowd in private sector finance? But there's also this broader question of how do you work with, how do you work with the multilateral development banks? How should the international community come together? One thing that we clearly lack at the international level, whether you're talking about the G7 or the G20, is any form of secretariat or continuity that can provide that kind of policy certainty. But in the absence of those, we have we have the sorts of statements that we've been talking about from from the G7 and so on. How, what do you think the international community should be doing in terms of international institutions? How can they push the case with multilateral development banks? What sort of action could they take to really, uh, to really push on the kind of investment we've been talking about? Well, I think you need to have a clear sense of ambition to start with. And I think you need to back up that ambition with meaningful steps and milestones in the road on the trajectory to where you want to get to. There's no point making announcements and then having no actual signposts or 
signals to actually where you want to get to. Now, I also feel historically, John, that some of the multilateral development banks, and I will, I will spare blushes here, I won't mention any specifically, but I have felt that sometimes they're deploying their capital where it's not really needed. You know, in Northern Europe, we don't need uh, multilateral development banks to be getting involved in stuff that the private sector can adequately finance itself. Where it is needed is more in in but in developed in developed countries. It's needed where you actually need support. Uh, where at the moment the private sector is nervous about investing itself. We've already talked about that. And in developing countries, it's really around a couple of things. It's working with. Um, contractors and others to try and develop a, a bankable pipeline of investable pipeline of projects. It's also about mitigating country risk where uh, certain investors would be nervous about investing in particular jurisdictions. So it's about, you know, providing uh, insurance. And these are, these are well-documented uh, products, right? MEGA has done this, part of the World Bank's done this for years, right? And it's also looking at mitigating some of the actual financial risks as well. So there has to be a risk-sharing approach on the part of the public and private sectors and multilateral development banks, et cetera, where it makes sense. And it's particularly particularly acute around where you're dealing with mega projects, particularly in developing countries. I think it's less of an issue in in uh, the developed uh, markets where I think it's got to be more direct support from governments, in my view. I don't think you necessarily... I mean, there are different mechanisms they can employ. I mean, National Infrastructure Bank being one of them, right? There's a vehicle there. But I, I think if the National Infrastructure Bank just invests directly in a bunch of projects... Um, without really adding much value. I don't think that that would be, I think that would be a little bit remiss in terms of what originally was intended for its purpose to be. So you do think then that, that there has to be a sort of different mix of certainly of, in terms of equity investment, whether you're doing this nationally or internationally. I mean, I, I very much agree with that. I think when we first looked at the Global Gateway Initiative towards the end of last year, when you unpacked it, I think the overall project was over 300 billion euros, but less than 10% of that was actually new investment from the commission and member states together, which just struck me as not something that's really going to move the dial very much. No, exactly. Uh, that, that, that's exactly right. And I, and I think that the trick here is for the public sector to work out where the bottlenecks for investment are, what, is, what are the key issues. And in fact, you know, the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable um, Leadership do a lot of work around this, particularly on sustainability, where they look at exactly what the bottlenecks are. They look at mechanisms like blended finance, where you've got public and private sectors working together. And you've also got to remember that public-private partnerships have got a very bad reputation in this country for various reasons in terms of the way that those projects were managed in certain cases, uh, the cost of the exchange checker, all the rest of it. So it needs to be handled very, very sensitively and carefully. But it does show that you can have successful uh, public-private engagement. It's been shown in other countries around the world that those models do work. I'm not saying that we need a return to PPPs in the traditional sense in this country. But when it comes to emerging infrastructure, we do need fresh approaches and clear thinking driven by serious people in government, right, with a serious view and some stability, by the way, and this brings it back to the kind of turbulence we've been recently having, unfortunately. Uh, we need to get real, we need to get serious, and we need to like have our eye to the horizon on what we actually want to achieve and by when. So on that, you mentioned you mentioned the importance of developing a pipeline of projects. And I think one of one of the things that's been just quite depressing, frankly, is that, as I said earlier, a year on from the original G7 summit, they've been really hard pressed to actually identify that kind of pipeline. So you mentioned um, 
There's the two billion solar project in Angola. At this summit, uh, they also sort of re-announced the Just Energy Partnership with South Africa. But there's clearly been a real block in actually developing a solid pipeline. And it's not very clear, I think, to our audience from the outside, why that has been the case when, as you said, on one hand, there's a lot of capital looking for a home. On the other hand, there is a $40 trillion um, infrastructure gap in the developing world. What, from an industry perspective, what is the missing perspective? What is the missing element in developing that pipeline? Well, I wish I had the answer completely. And I think you need to you need to distinguish, uh, John, between developed markets and developing markets. So I mean, in developing right. markets. Well, yeah, I think I think I think in developing markets. And look, I, I, I think it's I don't do too much in developing markets myself directly. But I think the way it works uh, in terms of overall investment is you've got to work, but both sides have to come together. The private sector, public sector, um, and developers all have to come together to look at what the actual needs are. What are the infrastructure needs of a particular country? Then how to develop the pipeline, be it roads, bridges, airports, whatever it may be. And how are those actually going to be financed? Now, there are various mechanisms that can be used uh, for that. There are a bunch of private uh, capital providers that would be more than willing to to go and do that, but they want to feel that they are insulated from political risk, really, really important. Changes of government do happen. Expropriation is a risk uh, in these these countries. So they want to to be um, certain about that. They also want to feel that when it comes to pipelines uh, of projects, that the bottlenecks will will be resolved. I mean, a lot of private investors don't have the resources to be going and lobbying governments I mean, even look at the US. Now, I was talking to a serious US investor, right? US is not a developing country. I mean, it's a it's a developed nation. He was telling me that you're not just dealing... The, the, the government at um, federal level cannot actually instruct infrastructure investment across all the states in the US. You're dealing with people down at county level, right? You're dealing with thousands of different stakeholders to try and get your pipeline done. And and this particular individual who heads up a a really major infrastructure fund was calling for an American infrastructure investment bank to actually identify projects early, develop the whole pipeline by dealing with permitting issues and local councils and boroughs and all these vested interests to bring things to a certain point which they are then investable. Because private, private equity investors don't have the time to invest five years in trying to get a project permitted with all the vested interests that that entails and all the lobbying efforts and all the rest of it. No one's got the time. So that's where you have a mechanism, both in the developing countries, but also developed nations, to try and get that, to get these projects to a stage where private sector then come in and say, okay, these are ready now. These are investable projects. Here's a panoply I can go and deploy my capital in. It's a really crucial point, actually, that unites both developed and developing markets, I think, that you just need some sort of mechanism to cut through the bureaucracy. You're absolutely right at the US level. And I think anyone who's driven in the state of California over the last 10, 15 years will sort of recognize that the roads there are not the roads you would expect, to say the least, in the world's richest country. They are literally falling apart. Exactly. And when Biden went to, uh, where was it? Was it, was it, uh, who, who went? 
to JFK and said, have I arrived in a developing country? And uh, a lot of developing countries felt that they were a bit put out by that comment, right? Because the infrastructure is so poor in parts of America. And you're talking about one of the, the leading economies in the world here. So look, we've all got our issues to deal with. But I think fundamentally, you do need mechanisms where those projects can be brought to market in a bankable fashion, where all the heavy lifting of getting them to that point is done. I think we're almost out of time. So I'm taking there's so much from that conversation, but the things that that's really left me with are the need both nationally and internationally for an honest debate about where capital should go and the zero sum choices it involves, a mechanism to cut through from strategy that cuts through bureaucracy and actually delivers on the ground. I think those two things are the things that we've been missing over the last year. And let's hope that we find a way of generating them over the next. Thanks, John. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much.